begin in James 4 today. We'll be in the first 10 verses of James 4, and I will read the scripture as we begin. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it, so you engage in disputes and conflicts. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. Adulterers do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is for nothing that the scripture says, God yearns jealously for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives all the more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Lord, we want to hear this word and receive your wisdom. We are your people, and we want to know you more as we do the important work that you have for us in the world. Amen. This is a unique passage in the book of James. While we find the same ideas in various parts of scripture, no one else talks to us quite the same way that James does. Here he is being part teacher, part parent, and counselor. When you were growing up, did you ever go uh, to an adult to tell them something that another kid did to you because you were in over your head? And when you went to tell that adult what happened, did they ever respond to you by saying, I hear what you are saying to me about what they did, but what did you do? What part did you play in the situation? Now, most kids hate this response from adults because they're mostly interested in getting the other kid in trouble or having the situation resolved quickly so they can go back and play. But it's a good exercise to help children think about their role in those situations because life is made up of conflicts and misunderstandings and grudges that affect our relationships at every level. As an adult, I have heard and participated in a lot of complaining about others. I'm not talking about my job as a pastor, but just me as a regular person, which I try to be sometimes. We go out with friends and the conversation can be dominated with a litany of offenses about family or people at work. Part of this is processing to help one another figure out how to respond But a lot of it is just blaming and judging others for the perceived mess that they are making in the life of the complainer. And James here is getting to an important piece of our character. What part do we play? 
He's basically telling us to take responsibility for the difficulties that we face in life. He's reminding us that we ourselves are a cause of the problems that we have in our relationships with others. He is spelling out how we are blocking the ways that God wants to give us help, and he's giving us advice. Much like an older mentor to someone younger under their care about the steps that can be taken so that we might have peace in our souls. There's so much we can't control about other people in this life, but we can make sure that our hearts are free and we can make sure that our side of the road is cleaned up with Christ as our helper. James has been talking about false and true wisdom in this section. He's been urging listeners to deal with the issues they have at the core, which is their heart. And now he turns to the next layer in the conversation. What causes those issues of the heart? Why do they happen and what should be done about them? Essentially, he is saying that the underlying root of most problems in our lives is pride. The disputes we have with one another, our distance from God, our inability to know how to move forward has to do with our own arrogance. And in our pride, we show how we know we're above other people, and this blocks us from acknowledging our need from God. So one message from James today that I want us to think about is this. As pride drags us down, being humble allows God to lift us up. On our own, we sink, and with God, we soar. And Jesus tells us that we have to become like little children, If we want to enter the kingdom of heaven. So let us receive this instruction from James today. Who is a mature teacher of the faith. Now the first problem that James wants us to take responsibility for. Is how our pride causes fights with others. He's using very strong language to remind the church how no one can uh, cast blame for the conflict. That is happening among them only on other people. You see, James knows the human tendency is to look everywhere except inside for the problem. And I imagine that he's telling them something like this. Quit looking at the other person. Stop blaming the institution. Don't point to the past. Stop complaining about your parents and your background. It's not because you're broke. And stop saying that nobody understands you. What have you done to add to the strife around you? Now remember that the church is dealing with a whole host of issues that have not allowed them to be the redeeming community, the just community that the Lord needs them to be. And James says, you're at war with one another because of the war that's going on in your own soul. And every person who has ever lived, you and me included, want so much out of life. No matter how much we have, we wish for something else, something more. Maybe it's material, maybe it's not. And part of this is because we have a human nature that's always going to crave what we don't have. And part of it is because we are built for a different kind of place. A place of perfection and ultimate hope. And this causes competing forces fighting inside of us. Because not all of our desires can be satisfied at the same time. Especially here. 
And James says, oh, you want something so bad that you commit murder. Which here can be literal killing, but also rendered metaphorically. Jesus says if we hate someone, it's the same as murder to him. Relationships are put to death every day by out-of-control impulses of anger and selfishness. Those who covet and envy are some of the unhappiest people anywhere. And woe to the person who comes across them in their bitterness and anger about the life that they hate. But the church is a body. And its members are bound together by Christ's blood. And there is never a situation where we get to write somebody off. There's never a situation where we get to say, that person is dead to me. I was also thinking about this scripture in light of Freedom Sunday. And how broken people who have allowed themselves to live with their unchecked desires, use slaves to make sure that they can still live how they want. They use others to get more. When sinful desires for power and sex and money and substance take over someone's soul, it's like a black hole and stuff just keeps going in, but nothing is going to fill them. And they don't think twice about trafficking others to keep those desires satisfied. When does a normal desire become something that takes over our lives? When do we become people we don't recognize? Because we have to have something at all cost. We hear Jesus teaching on the seed that was planted and started to grow healthy. And then along came the weeds. And he said the weeds were the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And it choked out the life that God gave. We have to be vigilant to cultivate the seed sown in the good soil. And not those things that are going to ultimately destroy us and take out people who are next to us. So there are two ideas here discontented hearts and how feeding that discontent can lead to the ongoing fights among us. Both are lessons for us to think about. So if there's an ongoing battle inside of you for something that can't be satisfied, please reach out. Please call somebody. Please get help. Jesus is victorious over anything that binds us here and he will help you overcome. And if you are involved in some kind of conflict or dispute because of unchecked motives, I encourage you to take responsibility for your part and to seek God's peace and all that that means. The second problem that James wants us to take responsibility for is how our pride relegates God's position in our lives. He writes something that is familiar to those who pray. He tells the church, you don't have because you don't ask. And if they do ask, he says, they have asked for the wrong things from the Lord. They are asking for whatever would increase their enjoyment in life, not on what would bring them closer to him. So this is about motivation when we pray. What underlies our prayers? Why do we go to God in the first place? Psalm 38, 9 says this, O Lord, all of my longings are known to thee. My sighing is not hidden from you. 
The author Beth Moore says that if praying for something makes you uncomfortable when you ask, maybe God is not in it. James would say amen, sister, to that idea. In fact, he says, asking God to give us more to spend on pleasure is not just wrong, but it breaks the covenant that we have with him. Prayers that are focused on getting more in this world are not from him. Prayer is appealing to him on our behalf to act for his will to be done, not ours. In verse 4, James calls his listeners adulterers. You adulterers, he says. But the original language actually reads adulteresses because it's feminine. James is reminding the church that she is the bride and Jesus is the bridegroom. And this idea has deep roots in the Old Testament, especially when we think about the prophet Hosea, whose marriage to his unfaithful wife Gomer was a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. Gomer broke Hosea's heart over and over again with her carousing and with her unfaithfulness. Israel broke God's heart by leaving him for all kinds of idols. And we break his heart when we long for anything more than him. Jesus makes, uh, James makes clear here what we understand to be absolutely true. The Lord will have no other gods before him. You are either his friend or his enemy. You cannot serve God while serving anything else. He demands our all. How did you consider the cost when you chose to follow Christ? What did that look like in your life? Later on, did the decision to surrender your life to God prove more difficult than you thought? There's a cost to knowing God. And James is spelling it out here. As Christians, we can't have it both ways. We cannot live for ourselves and for God. One way to ask it is, who are we trying to please? God made a beautiful world for us to live in that we have to take care of, that is so many things for us to enjoy, but that's not what this is talking about. This is asking, who? Who do you live for every day? Do we put ourselves first or God? When we take communion, which we will be doing next week, The pastors offer the elements to you, and we say, receive the body of Christ, which is broken for you. Receive the blood of Christ given for you. And when we do that, some of you talk back to us. We know you're not talking to us. We know that you're actually talking to God. Sometimes people will say when we do that, and I will live for him. And I'm always so struck when people say that, By these words of acknowledgement that in the moment of remembrance that Jesus has given his body so we would be forgiven, that people are reaffirming because Jesus has done this, I am going to live my life for him. Verse 6 is a turning point here. Although a person might be very far gone and God is jealous for their attention, Grace is so important to us. Douglas Moo says this, God is both one who makes frightful and all-encompassing demands of his people and one who gives his grace to all who humble themselves before him. We need both. 
Without jealousy, God becomes weak. Without grace, he becomes terrifying. We must maintain a careful balance of God. James reminds us that the key to receiving God's grace is humility. God opposes the proud because their main goal is themselves and what they want. Grace is a lifeline for us. It's given to save us whenever we need it and we're ready to receive it. And it never, ever stops coming. Whatever our challenges, there is more grace upon grace. I was reading this week, somebody said that grace is like Niagara Falls. In our weakness and our suffering and disillusionment, there is grace upon grace. When facing the darkness and the impossible and our failures, there is more grace. The water's never going to dry up. It's always going to come and pour over us. The root word of grace in Hebrew means to bend or stoop in kindness. God bends down in kindness to save us by giving us himself. In his presence, there's grace. So much has been written about grace because it's an essential piece of our friendship with God. Years ago, Kay Howell gave me a postcard that had a most beautiful poem on it that was written by a professor at Westmont at the time, Marilyn Chandler McIntyre. Here, here it is. How to recognize grace. It takes you by surprise. It comes in odd packages. It sometimes looks like loss or mistakes. It acts like rain or like a seed. It's both reliable and unpredictable. It's not what you were aiming at or what you thought you deserved. It supplies what you need, not necessarily what you want. It grows you up and lets you be a child. It reminds you that you're not in control and that not being in control is a form of freedom. May God's grace upon grace surprise us and be ours as we put him first in our lives. Lastly and quickly, James gives a solution to our pride, actions we can choose that will show our humility that we need to follow God more closely. In verses 7 through 10, there are imperatives that he gives us to lean into, and each one of them have to do with submitting to God. These would be great words for you to write down, for you to print off, and put around your home or wherever it is that you are where you'll see them every day. What does submitting to God look like? Resisting the devil for one thing. Bad news and good news here. The devil is real and comes after us, but we can stand up against him and he will leave. We think about Jesus in the wilderness, uh, standing up to him using scripture, putting his trust in God. And this is how we draw near to God while we ourselves are resisting evil. It's deliberate. It's choosing to enter who we are uh, and what we do to the Lord. We come as we are, and he purifies our hands and cleanses our hearts. James is talking to those who have been steeped in sin. And when that happens, when we have been steeped in sin, there is a lament and weeping and repentance. Before we can exult in the joy of the Lord, there is sorrow for the wrong that we have done. 
Warren Wiersbe says something interesting. He says, when you submit to God, when you do these things that James James is telling you, then the wars that you make will stop. You will not be at war with yourself. You will not be at war with God. And you will not have a need to create drama all around you. James is giving us more than simple doctrine here. He is calling us to action. So what action would God have you take today in response to this scripture? Where do you need to take responsibility and trust him more? In the conflicts that you're having? In the place God has you in your life? And how you seek him? Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.